Let's begin by reading the Metta Sutta together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, Freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I really love that. You know, when I travel to teach by myself someplace, any place, near or far, uh, I don't take much in the way of notes. I meet people and I teach out of what I remember to teach. The only thing I take with me is the Metta Sutta. And as soon as I arrive on the place, I have whoever is managing the retreat make me enough copies for everyone. And then I figure we have enough text to work with. Because I think that this is the whole of the path from the beginning to the end. And I think it's beautiful. And it's so um, consoling for me to read it. It's so reassuring. The idea that this is a possibility for human beings that we could have that kind of a mind that could dwell in the sublime abiding that would not be born into rerounds of suffering, 
by the habits of the mind. I'll read you another way that that's said in, in scripture. This is from the Diga Nikaya, and it's uh, just one paragraph where the Buddha is saying, here, a disciple with, with metta, in practicing metta, a disciple dwells pervading all directions with a heart filled with loving kindness. Likewise, the second and third and the fourth direction, also above, also below and around, one dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally with one's heart filled with loving kindness, abundant, grown great, measureless, free from enmity and free from distress. I find that so thrilling to think of free from enmity and free from distress. It's extremely easy to become distressed. How many people here became distressed today about anything? You know? You know, if you think about it, probably everybody got distressed about little things. Bell rang too soon, too late, too cold, too hot, too this, too that. It's extremely hard to cultivate that sort of mind of equanimity that says, this is what's happening. It wasn't what I most wanted or even wanted at all, but here it is, so that's okay. And doesn't trouble itself with distress that uh, maintains its basic natural peace and ease. It's incredibly easy to become distressed or annoyed. And think about, I'm, I'm thinking about having read such sublime expressions and then said, who here got annoyed? But really, it, I think it comes down to the mind is so easily annoyed to really have a commitment to a heart and a mind that dwells in peace in order to really send that out over all the world. Well, I'll tell you two, two stories that come to mind about that. One, uh, it's, it, it's a, um, what I just said is really represented in a story about uh, the Buddha. And the story is that on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, on the night in which he most fully understood the cause and the end of suffering as the habits of the mind that cause the mind to be filled with a sense of imperative that loses the natural peace of the mind. In the night that he made that discovery, as well as the discovery of the path that leads to those uh, qualities of mind and those practices of mind that maintain equanimity and maintain wisdom and are the end of suffering. The, the rendition of that night and the story of that night, which I think is, is just lovely to tell, is the story that he sat down at, on, at, at the base of a tree in Bodh Gaya and with a wonderful sense of conviction and courage and self-assurance he put his hand down on the ground next to him as if he really meant to be there. He said, I'm not getting up until I fully understand. And in the story about it, he is assaulted by all of the kind of afflictive emotions that might, that might sway the mind out of equanimity. 
things that arouse fear attacked him and things that arouse lust attacked him. And he sat completely composed. And the story that goes with it is he sat composed having recognized all these forces coming at him to disturb his mind and disturb his his intention to see clearly. He made the intention to stay there. He said, I see your armies, Mara. Mara being the personification of all afflictions. He said, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that. I, I think actually... In the whole English language, you'd have to look for a long time to find a, a, a line that's more comforting than I am not afraid. And he's got his hand down on the ground, I'm not afraid. And in the story, in the, the description of that night, here come all of these afflictions to disturb him. He is, manages to sit with equanimity through it because it said... He had so cultivated loving-kindness that it radiated out from him with such a force that as all these arrows of distress came towards him, either attempting to frighten him or arouse lust and other kinds of confusions in him, he could so radiate loving-kindness as a reflection of his equanimity that as these afflictions came towards him, they were all transformed into flowers and fell on the ground around him. That's really one of my favorite stories. I love that story. I think about whether it actually happened or actually didn't happen as a a description of the possibility to defuse afflictions as they arise is so extraordinarily inspiring to me. In the Van Gogh Museum in uh, Amsterdam, there, the, the, the exhibit is mostly paintings of Van Gogh. And uh, on the fourth floor, there are paintings by other Impressionists. I was there in October and uh, spent some wonderful days in museums. And on the top floor, I just forgot the name of a, of a French Impressionist who's uh, rendered a, 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 a painting of the Buddha on that very night. But you don't know it. As you come into the room, the painting is way at the other side of the room, and it's fairly large, and it's, it's very bright. It's whitish and pinkish and brilliant um, in, in the way of an Impressionist uh, painting that almost glows. And from uh, across the room... You can barely make out the shape of a tree, but as you approach it, you find that the Buddha is uh, sitting underneath it, and uh, the the flowers are all around him. It's an unusual, atypical Buddha, because instead of sitting and looking at you as he's normally rendered, he's sitting sideways looking over here. And as you back away, you can't see him anymore, and then you have to come closer and see it again beautifully. And there's something about that that really pleases me so much that you could just go by and not see it, but if you really, really look, you could. And it has a sense in me that uh, of being um, an, uh, an instruction for practice that really that vision and that understanding 
is just around us in our very lives if we really, really looked. So when people ask me, what's mindfulness practice? I say it's the practice of paying attention, but really, really paying attention. The, uh, in, uh, in English uh, books about paying attention, uh, the word vipassana is translated as clear seeing. Uh, in f- the French translation of that same book, the translation is vision profonde. And I like that much better. I think it's uh, not, uh, not only for the poetics of it, but I think that uh, I could wipe my glasses and see clearly, but I might not unless I had internal intention to really, really look with all of my senses and all of my faculties. I might not really, really see what's true. But if I did, it's right there to be seen, right in front of you, like an Impressionist painting. And I also love the other, the other great thing. There were an extraordinary number of wonderful paintings by Van Gogh in that museum. But the other great thing that stayed in my mind after I left were the T-shirts that the workers in the museum wear. You know, and they have... Uh, museum shops, and the workers in the museum shops wear uh, T-shirts with a, um, a quote from Vincent van Gogh on the back. And the quote is, I believe there is no more genuine artistic work of art than the ability to truly love another person. And I love that. It made me think, uh, first of all, I love that he said that, and I love that they're wearing it on their T-shirts. But I loved also the idea that it's a work, that it's an ongoing practice to keep loving another person, all other people. You know, we're actually, we're, we're animal beings, and we're very concerned with ourselves. And it's very... Uh, um, I wish it weren't so easy for me to get captivated in my own story and forget the whole world out there that full of things for me to pay attention to and both be thrilled by and exalted by and moved to compassion by. And I think that story is so amazing, that amazing story of the amount of suffering in the world that uh, when I'm awake I feel in touch with and moved by the magnificence of creation and the fact that we're alive and this consciousness works. It's humbling to find how much time I spend in this little tiny story over here compared to the story I could be paying attention to. I think sometimes about those big TVs, you know, the special remote controls where you push a certain button and you can check the Army-Navy game while watching the Notre Dame-USC game on the big screen. I think to myself, I could be watching the big screen of life unfolding in all its complicated, glorious magnificence, or I could be watching Sylvia Face's life. And way too often, I get caught in the Sylvia Face's life. And when I do, first of all, it's boring, it's tedious, it's frightening, it's isolating, it's lonely. And it's so easy to re-remember the rest of the world by doing the one particular maneuver that I think is necessary, that that there's a key to 
in the Metta Sutta that allows the mind and heart to turn out and wish well for everyone. You know, when I teach the Metta Sutta, and some of you have probably been in groups where I've done this, where I've said, okay, get a partner, and with your partner, determine which of these lines of instructions is the most important line. And then we have people say, we decided this one, we decided that one. And it's quite wonderful. Every time we do it, and I, and I personally have an idea that there's one important line. I mean, it's all very important lines, but there's one key line, so I think. But when I have everybody do that, everybody, when we go through the whole group, everybody has covered all the lines. So I'm very happy about them. They're all key lines. The line I want particularly to talk about is the line that says, Wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. It comes about 13 lines down. I want us in a minute or two to go through this whole of the, the, the sutta together because I want to point out to you what I think is thrilling. I think this is the whole of the path. It's the path of the cultivation of ethics. It's the path of the cultivation of mind in terms of cultivating those habits that in fact incline the mind towards other, incline the mind towards goodwill, incline the mind even when it's addressing itself, to address itself with goodwill and with compassion. And at the end of it is uh, the promise of what happens if you can do that. The path as it's described it, the Buddhist path, as it's described, is always the path of morality, the, practice, the path of the cultivation of mind, and the path of the development of wisdom. And this is the whole path, and the promise of freedom at the end of it. I think it's completely thrilling. And I think that that little line, at big line, wishing in gladness and in safety, when I feel glad, when I feel safe, when I'm not frightened, when my mind is content, then my attention goes from myself and my story to what's around me quite naturally. And I am moved by what's around me quite naturally because I think human hearts are moved to compassion, to kindness, to compassion, to goodwill, to forgiveness, to tolerance. When they rest in a certain amount of equanimity. And cheerfulness. Oh, I want to do the sutta, but I want to tell you one more story. I'm going to tell you one more little story. How can you tell a little story about the Dalai Lama? can't tell a little story. But I, the other great thing that I did in the last few months is I went to the... Uh, I was part of... Uh, I went to the... Uh, Kalachakra initiation that the Dalai, uh, Dalai Lama led in Washington, D.C. last July. And I, I told my grandchildren when I'd come back, I, even my grandchildren are teenagers now, and I, I told them uh, I'd gone to take this training from the Dalai Lama. They said, did you meet him? Did you shake hands with him? I said, you know, there were 14,000 people there. <laughs> we didn't shake hands. I said, but you know what? 
you felt like you were shaking hands with him. Every single person in that room, I think, felt like he had shaken their hand. Every single person felt different as soon as he came in. All the stories that you hear about the room is different when he's in there are true. I'll tell you, I'll set you the scene so you can appreciate it a little bit. It's in the, it was in the Verizon Center in Washington, D.C. It's an enormous place. It's uh, uh, where they have basketball games. It's an arena. It's a huge arena with tiered arena seats and 14,000 people. And at one end, a stage and 100 probably monks uh, sitting up on the stage. And in the middle of that... Uh, a, a, an elevated chair, throne, that the Dalai Lama sits on. And uh, if you look at him, I had a quite good seats. And I, I wasn't so far away, I could see him uh, just maybe as far as the back of this room. But there were also enormous television cameras all around because it's a basketball arena. And so you're watching all the time the actual Dalai Lama and the huge Dalai Lamas on the screen teaching. So it's quite a, a, a overwhelming experience. And, um, and it's all day long, every day, for a week, and it's a preparation for the final days in which everybody there takes a vow to dedicate themselves to create peace in their heart on behalf of peace in the world, forever and ever and ever. You know, it's an amazing thing when uh, people come in there, and they come in fairly quietly, even if it's a, a basketball, they come in, but there's a certain amount of decorum. You know, People come in and they talk to each other. There wasn't a rule that you couldn't. And they sit down, and at some point, the Dalai Lama comes in. And when he comes in, suddenly 14,000 people stand up, and stand quietly, and there isn't a sound. And it's profound. And he does his bows, and then he sits down, and then everybody sits down, and he looks around, and more often than not, he looks around and he smiles, and he has a characteristic little laugh, you know. He, la- he looks around and he says, ha. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean, I certainly mean that in the most affectionate way. He has a very dear laugh. Once a long time ago, and this is actually appropriate to what we're doing here this week, in a place that wasn't quite so large, in an arena with 5,000 people in it, people from the audience were asking questions, and someone said to him, he's sitting alone on the stage at that point, and someone uh, said, stood up at the microphone and said, do you ever get angry? And he, they, you know, hear the question. And he said, of course. <laughs> he said, something happens. It wasn't what you wanted. Anger arises in the mind. And then just like a brief pause like that. And he said, but it's not a problem. that. <laughs> <laughs> And you really, and you realize that anger arises that the mind, when it's startled by things aren't going right. At the time, he was the political head of state as well, so he had to be in charge of all of, all of those kinds of political affairs. Something's not going right. Somebody hasn't done their job. You hear about it, and the mind says, the mind ruffles a little bit in anger, but it's quite clear it doesn't have to be a problem. 
that how it comes out is you register the problem, and the mind calms itself down, and then you take care of the problem. And it's not a problem that that uh, the mind can get stirred out of equanimity, but it returns very quickly to it. It's recognized. And I think that one of the things that happens is maybe the Dalai Lama radiates out that kind of huge energy, but my my sense is that everyone loves the idea of the Dalai Lama so much that everybody there is radiating out that energy. And that when you all stand up with those 14,000 people, you feel tremendously lifted up by them. I think we're lifting each other up because we're all so excited about the possibility of a heart of peace. And he said at the very beginning of the teaching, uh, he said some quite extraordinary things to begin with. I think to reassure people, he said, you know, I want to say before we do this whole week of initiation practices and the initiation, that uh, do not be concerned if you're not a Buddhist or if you're not identified as a Buddhist. He said, uh, it's not significant to me whether or not you're a Buddhist. Uh, what's significant to me is that people should be an ethical person who believes in the possibility of a good heart. So that's what I believe in. He said as if, you know, he just talks out loud like he's musing. He said, you know, I have some very good friends who aren't Buddhists. I've been meeting with Catholic monks in the last several years. And I see that when they see when they say, I want my mind to be able to love God fully, they mean the same as when I say, I want to be able to love everything fully. It's the same. It was an extraordinary experience. Here's what I wanted to tell you that he said, which I have reflected on a lot since then. He said, in order for us all to be able to take those vows at the end of this week and really mean them, we could just say them, but really for your mind to be prepared to take that vow in a way that it resonates in your heart in a transformative way, you need first to establish a heart of wisdom and a heart with infinite altruism. I love that phrase, infinite altruism. He said, a mind with infinite altruism has no jealousy, no anger, no fear. And I've been reflecting on that quite a lot because the first thing I thought when he said a heart of wisdom and a heart of infinite altruism is I thought, I thought to myself, that's the same thing. He said, you need to have two things. And, but I thought, that's the same thing. If I had a heart of wisdom, really, really, if I deeply, deeply understood that everything is so conditioned, because everything has to do with so many interwoven conditions, if we understood that, we would understand that everyone and everything is just the way it is because of conditions. And that how we are makes a difference so that the next moment and the next moment and the next moment of the world can be different. But no one has to be blamed for how it is now. And no one needs to be afraid. It's not, 
it's not a mistake. My teacher, um, <laughs> I do I really want to say this? My teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who I love very much, was one of my first teachers, used to say, and I believe this, it's a lawful cosmos. Uh, Joseph's, uh, Joseph's background is East Coast as mine, and uh, I heard it as, it's an awful cosmos. <laughs> and uh, since when I began my practice, I myself was a, 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 a more nervous and frightened and uh, tentative and all of the above than I am now. I thought, well, he's right, you know. But actually, lawful cosmos doesn't mean good things happen to Bad, that bad things don't happen to good people. Things happen to people. Things happen. Things happen because of conditions so complicatedly, causally connected. I really think that if I understood that fully, I would really be able to remain fully active in the world and work for peace and justice and fairness and not make enemies in my heart. I don't think I could do it fully if I made enemies in my heart. And I would be frightened if I had enemies in my heart. And I can't always hold that stance. But in this minute, as I tell it to you, I believe it completely. It seems quite right to me. And I can easily get confused. And then I can remember that I used to know that, but I don't know it now. So he said, among other things, that uh, one of the signs of, uh, one of the functions of precepts, he said, were that it made that um, mind of infinite altruism. He said morality was a sign of altruism. Behaving yourself, not creating difficulty in the world by your behavior. So that morality practice becomes a meditation practice. I've always thought that morality practice was a meditation practice. It wasn't one that I did with my eyes closed on my zafu particularly, but it's actually the, the way I hope I live my life. I imagine we all live our life. These very precepts that uh, we said last night, ways of saying I vow to do this or this or this or this, aware of the suffering that's caused in the world when that isn't done. That requires so much attention. Let's read the beginning of the sutta again. The first lines are the ethical training. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I hope you love that. I love that. I just think it's... I, I could spend, and I often do, when uh, 
we meet down the hill every Wednesday morning with classes. We often go through this line by line and talk about what it brings up for each of us. But I think about that line, not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And I don't have a sense when I say that, that other people are going to come and say, ah, ah, Sylvia, you did that wrong. I think the wise who reprove that give me the most unhappiness is my own wise mind that reproves. I wonder if you've discovered, as I have, I think those of you who have done some practice before have probably discovered that as the mind becomes somewhat more settled and somewhat more focused and somewhat more steady and you begin to think, ah, now I really feel good. All of a sudden, here out of nowhere, without a conscious intention, may a moral inventory arise. A moral inventory arises that the fundamental mind, our, our, our own personal mind, I, 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 this is way too anthropomorphized, but I think to myself, my, my heart or my mind or my heart mind is waiting. It doesn't trouble me with whatever it is that I did that I wouldn't feel good about if I'm too busy. And then when I sit down and I'm quiet, it might say, you know, Sylvia, I notice that it's a little quiet up there and you're a little, or in here, that would be better. It's a little quiet in here and uh, you're somewhat relaxed now. Would you like to reconsider the fact that uh, uh, you hung up too quickly with your cousin yesterday who clearly needed to talk a little bit longer and you were annoyed and you ended the conversation or... Would you like to think about, as a matter of fact, that uh, you didn't send that thank you card that you said you were going to send? And Would you like to think about the fact that you didn't write that letter to the newspaper that you thought you were going to write? And, that, you know, I'm happy to tell you, I'm not telling you the worst, but it tells me. But I'm, I, I, I honestly think there's a little, like a, a, a folder in, uh, in my mind in some way, as we have a folder in our computer that uh, is triggered by a relaxed and present mind that says, you know, I can see that you're in a state of mind now that's a little bit spacious, so you won't be too hard on yourself. I'd like you to notice this and take care of these little things. So fix them up if you don't mind, and don't be hard on yourself. And Usually it's not too much. Sometimes I think that's enough for today. But... But it's really, it's actually, truth to tell, I have come to respect that aspect of mind so much. It really reinforces my, my, my absolute belief that most human beings are actually built in, have a, a morality that's built into them, and the compassion that's, that's really innate. Most human beings have that. And the fact that my mind wants to make amends for what it hasn't done as well as it might have, makes me feel good about minds. Other people discover that as well. So then we come to the key line. Having done all that, living that way, we can then, I can, and we can, wish in gladness and in safety Read with me. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, 
May all beings be at ease. May none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Let's stop. It's not quite the end of that instruction. The rest of that little part is an example of how we might, as a mother, really have that kind of boundless heart. But really, it's a chance to say that for me, the heart of the training is, may I be free of enmity and the danger it would pose. There's there's actually a metta chant that begins, may I be free of enmity and danger. And when I first heard it, I thought maybe that meant, may I have no enemies coming after me that would endanger me. But it's really quite clear to me that the enmity that's dangerous to my well-being is the enmity that I might be harboring in my own mind. There are lots of people that I'm not fond of, and there are people whose behavior I don't approve of. Uh, I'm active in many ways to take steps that those people are not in positions of political power to the best that I can. But to not have enmity, to not make them, to not have ill will in my mind, to not embitter my mind. I've been reading, um, anyway, this is the text that I wanted to bring you as an example of this. I've been reading Jane Eyre. Have you read Jane Eyre recently at all? I hadn't. I met, a, I met an old college friend in New York, and she said, what book have you read more than twice in your life? And I have a few. I asked her, what have you read more than twice? And she said, I keep Jane Eyre next to my bed, and I reread it every year or two. So I didn't immediately say I've never read Jane Eyre. <laughs> but the minute we parted company, I rushed over to Barnes & Noble and bought Jane Eyre and started to read it and did not put it down until I finished it because so gripped was I both by the writing style which is incredible and by the message so the one little piece I want to tell you about is uh, Jane Eyre is orphaned and placed with a family as a ward of that family who treat her very, very, very poorly and harshly and eventually put her in a school, a school for impoverished orphan girls, in which she is even treated more harshly. And uh, at some point, she, a woman, a girl, a little older than she, named Helen, befriends her. And Helen also is treated harshly, and Jane notices that Helen is tranquil. Uh, Helen... Uh, manages the uh, being reproved and keeps a certain peace of mind about her all the time. And at one point, they have a conversation conversation about this. And she said, "But Helen, uh, I, I must dislike those who whatever." She's explaining to Helen why she's so mad at the personnel and the teachers and the administrators. I must dislike those who whatever I do to please them persist in disliking me. I must. It is as natural that I should love those who show me affection or submit to punishment when I feel it is deserved, but I must dislike those who treat me that way. <coughs> Helen replies that uh, you really don't understand. And 
And then Helen says, it isn't violence that overcomes hate, nor vengeance that certainly heals injury. And the line from the Buddha is, hatred is never ended by hate. By love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. And Helen says, you have to love all these people and bless them. And Helen says, How could, Helen says listen, uh, I, if, if that were true, I'd have to love Mrs. Reed, my, uh, my person with whom I lived, which I cannot do, and bless her son, which is impossible. And Helen asked me to explain, and I proceeded forthwith to pour out in my own way the tale of my sufferings and resentments, and I was bitter and truculent and excited. And as I spoke, I felt, I, I felt more and without reserve or softening. And Helen heard me till the end. And then she didn't say anything, and I and Jane says, I asked her, is not Mrs. Reed a hard-hearted, bad woman? And Helen said, she's been unkind to you, no doubt, because she dislikes you. But how minutely you seem to remember all that she has done and said to you. What a singularly deep impression her injustice seems to have made on your heart. No ill usage so brands its record on my feelings. She goes on to say, wouldn't there be a way that you could not keep on telling yourself that story and release yourself from the bondage of that bitterness? I've just paraphrased that. That isn't exactly. And then Helen says, life appears to me too short to be spent in nursing animosity or registering longings. I think, whoa. So it's, it's wisdom, and it's wisdom that you find all over the place, not in the Buddha, all of, only in the Buddha, but all over the place. And we know it in our own hearts, that bitterness and resentment and vengeance, uh, thoughts of vengeance, are so painful. And what we do here is not convince ourselves that our past is not our past, why not arm wrestle our mind to the ground by refusing to acknowledge the truth of our experience now or ever? We construct a mind that's spacious enough to be able to hold all of the information of our present life and our past life in such a way that it isn't stirred into enmity and bitterness and suffering. And we do it through the practice of blessing. Really what we're doing, we call it, we don't often say so many blessings. I think we're using the word more. We used to call them meta-intentions. But the truth is, they're blessings. And they're prayers for our well-being. And to hold oneself in blessing is really to forgive oneself. And I find my mind has become in a big snarl because I've let myself run away with some unhappiness and some thought about it shouldn't be this way. You know, every time I've decided that should is such a difficult word. Every time I think it shouldn't be this way, I think we should take should out of the language. It is this way. Should, when I say it shouldn't have come out, he shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have said that. It shouldn't have happened. It really means I wish it hadn't. But it did. And it did because it was the only thing that could have happened. So it did happen. And what I really mean is I so wish it were other. 
And if I say, I so wish it were other, it's in pain for me that it's not, then I don't have the bitterness of it shouldn't in the righteous indignation. I wish it were other. I find my mind gets into a snarl because I've been caught up in bitterness or jealousy or animosity or righteous indignation. And I catch myself, I can say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Take a breath. Take another breath. This is the way things are. That's actually what I do. And I'm so happy. I started a few years ago to tell people that. And now I'm meeting people all over who say, you know, I'm starting to hear you when my mind gets into a snarl. And I say to myself, sweetheart, take a breath. Think it over. It'll be all right. You'll figure it out. And some people say, well, you know, I don't feel right calling myself sweetheart. That's a word I don't use. But you don't have to say sweetheart. The intent of the sweetheart is it means I'm not mad at myself. It could say honey. You could say your own name. The whole idea is not to be mad at myself. If I've got let my mind become in a snarl, you know, maybe I think it's actually worse for people who are in positions of being meditation teachers or spiritual, so to speak, leaders. Because then if my mind gets in a snarl, I not only have the pain of the snarl, but I have the pain of the thought all these years of meditation practice. And everybody thinks I have it so together. And my mind has run away with a total snarl. What a complete fraud I am. You know, I just embellish it so it gets worse. And then what, what really, the only thing that's required is saying, sweetheart, you're in pain. I'm talking to myself, you're in pain. I would say it to somebody else. Sweetheart, you're in pain. Take a breath. Figure it out. You can do it. It's the practice of allowing, sweetening the mind so that we hold ourselves and other people in more spaciousness. Actually, uh, I think it was Larry last night who read um, from an Anglican priest. This is uh, Henry Ward Beecher, Congregationalist minister in the mid-1800s very staunch and uh, powerful abolitionist. So the habit of mentioning people in blessing, praying for people, mentioning them by, by name, familiarly, he said, mentioning people by name, familiarly, is eminently beneficial, he says. It will cleanse you. It will sweeten your disposition. He also goes on to say, it will take out all those parts of your mind that are habituated to doing otherwise. It will dry them up. I don't remember exactly the phrase he used when I read it. As the, as the noonday sun dries up raindrops, will dry up those habits of mind that might do otherwise. I was thinking about, it's a peculiar place to end, but I was, I was thinking about my friend Guy Armstrong, who... Uh, talks about metta practice also as sweetening the mind. 
um, somewhat more banal, his analogy. He says, uh, the meta-mind is uh, like concentrated, uh, it's like frozen orange juice. It says, everything that is extra is squeezed out of it, and only the sweetness is left. So I thought about that just this afternoon when I was thinking of telling that to you. And I, I thought, well, you know, I want to be clear when I say this, because lest it sound um, that when the sweetness is left, there's no discernment, that the sweetness makes everything fine, covered with honey or sweetness. Or, and I want to say, it's, I, I, would, would, I would want to say maybe not so much that just the sweetness is left, but just discernment is left. Wisdom is left. Discernment without bitterness and see life just the way it is. Discernment then with hope in it because it could be different. For me, the very big piece of um, feeling hopeful in, a, uh, in, a t- in times like these I don't know if these are the most distressing times in the history of the world, but this is the only life I know, and the world is in a worrisome place. And, and I think about what keeps me hopeful. Keeps me hopeful to think that 14,000 people want to come day after day from morning till night, practicing, cultivating a, a mind of infinite altruism, makes me hopeful to think that people can come out to uh, the, the middle square, main square in Cairo, in thousands and thousands of people and be peaceful together, or the main square in all those cities across North Africa, the Middle East. When that was happening, I thought, this is the most hopeful thing I've had in my life for the longest time. I always imagined from the time that I heard someone say that the proximal cause of the, of the end of the Berlin Wall in 1989 was the invention of the fax machine, that they could stop people from going in and out and books from going in and out, but they can't stop the telephone. And people could fax in, don't give up, keep on going, freedom is possible. Liberation is possible. Somebody said that the proximal cause of the wall coming down was the fax machine. I think the proximal cause of the world rising up and saving itself is going to be the, the phone, whatever it is, of the moment, <laughs> the Android or the smartphone, and people all over the world texting each other, peace is possible. Let's do it, starting now. There are way more young people than old people in the world. They're better at the phones. And they have a whole life to live. And all over the place, the message is we re- that hatred is not held, ended by hatred. By love alone is it ended. It's not that hard of a message. We all know it through our personal experience. 
I think that, you know, someone told me recently there were two billion people on Facebook. I don't know if that's more or less. But imagine if everybody Facebooked each other at the same moment, said, ready, set, go, stop. Take care of everybody you know, omitting none. Maybe that's the most important line in the whole sutta. Omitting none. That means there's no holding on to any bitterness, but yes, yes, but how about this or that or this or that? And this week's practice, starting today with ourselves, is really such a brilliant, systematic way of really allowing the mind to relax into loving ourselves, enjoying, really blessing ourselves, blessing those dear to us, those also dear to us, next of kin, next of next of kin, friends and peers and people that we recognize in the street. And I sometimes think about how many people in the world are in the category of familiar strangers to me. I don't know, maybe several hundred, maybe a thousand familiar strangers. But there are so many more unfamiliar strangers. So if I can wish for the familiar strangers, just one step to the unfamiliar strangers based on that sense in my own life that they, just like me, would like to live in a world of peace. And that this is a practice that's meant to enable us to really do that. The end of that week with His Holiness, everybody taking those vows, we really felt energized about it. You know, like, it could happen. I hope that every moment that you're here, that holds you up in your practice. It's going to happen with every one of us being a part of it. No single person can do it alone, and it requires everybody. This is said to be the sublime abiding. May all beings be at ease, omitting none. I remember just as I'm saying that, His Holiness saying, this is an ecumenical practice. It's a practice for people. All people. We can just sit together for a minute.
Thank you.